What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? one 288 ewtn I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. one 288 3986 Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. And what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Your questions can be answered over the next hour. Dr. David Anders taking your calls at 833-288-3986, 833-288-EWTN. Now, if you're outside North America, different number, so we'll give that to you. One, then 205 271-2985. And of course, you can jump on Facebook and YouTube as uh, we get those questions live on the spot. So thank you for watching us there. And then again, emails at ctc at ewtn.com. We've got our team in place, Charles, Jeff, and Rich all helping us out this afternoon. And of course, Dr. David Anders, how are you? Hey, so I'm doing great. How about you? I'm good. Are you surviving this heat like this week is like the worst that I thought we were going to see all summer. <laughs> well, thanks to air conditioning, I seem to be making it through. You're all right. You're not losing the unnecessary weight, right? Um, not only, <laughs> no, no, well, unnecessary weight would be okay to lose. I got you. That's you know? true. That's fair. All right. Again, 833-288-3986, 833-288-EWTN. As uh, we start to get your calls, we're going to jump into the mailbag. Uh, Russ wants to know, do you have to be baptized to go to heaven, or is your belief in God and honoring the commandments sufficient? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So Jesus said, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. And the Catholic faith has always insisted upon the necessity of baptism uh, because we have to be regenerated in the Holy Spirit uh, to be uh, indwelt by God's grace, uh, to be uh, uh, suited for the life of heaven. Grace is, in fact, the seed of eternal life begun in our hearts. Uh, But the Church also recognizes that that grace of baptism can be extended to people well, through water baptism, but also through the desire for baptism. And so a catechumen, say, who's studying to become a Catholic, and, uh, you know, classic example, trips and falls and busts his head open on the way to the baptismal font, right? (laughs) We don't conclude that that soul is lost, that the Mm -hmm. grace of God was active in that person, evidenced by his desire for baptism. Uh, Baptism by blood, uh, martyrdom, has always been recognized by the Church as the ultimate act of self-donation to Christ. And so martyrs, even the unbaptized, uh, martyrs for Christ are are among those listed as saints in the in the church's canon, um, and uh, and that desire for baptism can be more or less explicit, right? So someone could, like a catechumen, have the explicit desire for baptism in the Catholic Church, uh, but someone might have more of an implicit desire for a reunion with Christ that would properly take the form of baptism, uh, in a way more remote from the organizational structure of the church, but known only to God alone. Russ, we appreciate your email. We're going to check our voicemail from overnight, see what's coming in. Delane, I'm from Fort Yates, North Dakota. And there was somebody asked the question, the difference between the old Mass and the new Mass. That's my question also. And, I, I you know, I'm, I kind of feel like I'm being left out when, it, when there's the Latin prayers, a lot of Latin prayers are going on because I don't understand Latin. So I feel like I'm being left out. Where do I go to have to learn Latin in order to be able to understand Mass. I've been a Catholic all my life, so that's my question. Thank you. 
Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the question. So obviously you put your finger on the most noticeable difference between the old rite and the new rite of the Mass, and that is the presence of the vernacular in the liturgy. And in the new rite of the Mass, the, the vernacular is is uh, permitted and preferred. Uh, the old rite is entirely in Latin. There are other differences as well. So the lectionary readings are different. Uh, many of the specific prayers that are articulated are, are different. Now, there are points of commonality, of course, but there are differences. The liturgical calendar is constructed differently. So, you know, it would be, it would be pedantic to go through line by line and show you all the particular differences, but, but there are others as well. Um, and uh, as far as, you know, there's a reason why the Church decided to permit the vernacular for the use of the liturgy, and it's for the reasons that you stated, right? Your own active participation in the Mass is enhanced by your understanding of the words, right? That is absolutely true, and that's why the Church permits the vernacular. Uh, I will add, though, that people who are uh, brought up to the use of Latin or any liturgical language uh, typically grow into an understanding of the rites and forms, and so it's not impossible, of course, for the laity to actively participate by you know, intention and will um, in a liturgy that's in a specific liturgical language, even if it's not their native tongue. And so when you do have the Mass celebrated in Latin, typically there are tools and helps available to you, uh, missalettes that probably have the thing in parallel, usually have the thing in parallel translations. Um, and uh, even when that's absent, the, the ordinary of the Mass, that's the parts of the Mass that, are, that never vary, they're always the same from liturgy to liturgy, uh, become deeply familiar to people who practice them in that way, week after week, year after year of their lives. Uh, you know, I, I, um, uh, I remember myself meeting a man who had grown up and lived most of his Catholic life before the Council, and not an academic, not a very learned person, uh, not a very literate person, and I remember asking him, you know, your entire experience of the Mass was in Latin for most of your life. Um, how how uh, deep do you think your understanding was of it? And his response to me was, well, I understood everything that was going on because this is how I'd been brought up. So mm. it, w w with a deference to the Church's judgment that, yes, the vernacular is preferable in the ordinary form, uh, that's not to say people who celebrate in the liturgical language, uh, special liturgical languages like Latin or whatever it might be, are incapable of participating. That's not true. All right. Thanks so much for your question. Uh, as we hear from Carol, she's asking, why do you think God struck Miriam with leprosy and not Aaron? Yeah, I have absolutely no idea, right? <laughs> I mean, I, 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 all I could do here is speculate. All I could do here is speculate, and I probably had better not speculate. That's fair. So we'll jump over to John, and he wants to know, uh, if one wanted to be a good Berean, where would they find the canon law in the time of the apostles? Yes. Okay, so if you wanted to be a good Berean and find the canon law in the time of the apostles, you would consult the rulings that the apostles made about the organization of churches. So, uh, for example, the St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians is replete with what we would eventually come to call canon law, not matters of dogma, but matters of church discipline and practice that Paul lays down to be the rule for Christians. And, um, and of course, they did pass into sacred scripture, but they were the rule for Christian worship even before 1 Corinthians was circulated widely throughout the universal church and recognized as part of the Bible. So, you know, what are some of those rules that Paul laid down? He read down many of them. I'll just pull some at random. Um, he said, uh, for example, if a married Catholic uh, divorces his or her spouse, which he shouldn't do, uh, that individual must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to the spouse. That, that's just be one example of a canon, a rule that Paul 
uh, dictated to the church in Corinth. All right. It is called the Communion with Dr. David Andrews. You can get your call in at 833-288-3986. We'll be right back. And welcome back to Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. I'm Ace McKay in for Tom Price as we are ready to take your questions this afternoon about your faith. If you're new as a Catholic or considering conversion, you can, of course, call in and we'll be happy to address those at 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. And then outside North America, 1-205-271-2985. Before we go to the phones today, of course, being the Feast of St. Rose of Lima, it's a good time for you to invite her into your home. A 26-inch statue right now in the EWTNRC catalog. And what's great about it is she's gazing lovingly at Christ's child as he holds a cross in one hand and extends his other. So uh, imported from Peru, you can add this to your home decor. Just check it out online, EWTNRC.com. Remember that free standard shipping online for order seven. $25 or more, make sure you use the code FREE at checkout. Again, 833-288-3986 as we go to South Bend, Indiana, Sydney, listening on the Ave Maria radio app. Hello there, Sydney. What's your question for Dr. Anders? Uh, Dr. Anders, I know you've been very transparent about uh, Catholics, uh, and I am a convert to Catholicism, as I know you are, and I kind of read my way into Catholic Church. I've been a convert for like over 30 years, but I'm struggling because I can intellectually uh, convince people about the Catholic Church. But when I talk about bringing them into specific parishes, it's very difficult because so many Catholic parishes are not particularly friendly, and my own Catholic parish right now is extremely fraught because they're having uh, a lot of very unpleasant wars over the music, liturgy, and so forth. And this just makes it very difficult to evangelize. So could you weigh in on this, please? You are speaking uh, my language, Sydney, 100%. Man, I could not agree with you more. I, um, you know, I was having a conversation with a very prominent national figure in, uh, who's instrumental in evangelism and parish ministry, and uh, you know, I, I raised the question of getting more people into the parish, parish reaching out and drawing more people into relationship with Christ. And he he gave an interesting perspective. He said, well, you know, my, my focus is on making the parish the kind of place where people would want to be drawn into, mm. right? And recognizing that, that, that we have a problem in parish culture uh, in the Catholic Church in North America and probably other places as well. So I recognize that this is an issue. And, uh, you know, I, I don't have a systematic solution you know, beyond the reform of parish life, which is something that people in diocesan ministry are working on. Uh, in the meanwhile, what do you do practically? I think you have to construct ad hoc solutions. So let me tell you what I mean by that. When I have initiated people into Catholic faith, I, I can't say naively, um, you know, just pick any old Catholic parish and jump in. It'll be great. I, I know that I can't say that. And so what I typically do is I familiarize myself with the lay of the pastoral landscape and with specific clergymen and their charisms and personalities. And so I attempt to introduce initiates to uh, those specific personalities. I don't, I don't hand them over willy-nilly to any and all parishes. I try to hand them over to people that I know will take uh, pastoral care of their souls. 
and, uh, and and so many times converts, especially from Protestantism, that are used to kind of a tight-knit uh, Christian community, will form for themselves a kind of ad hoc spider web of Catholic relations that are not limited to one geographical parish, but sort of span uh, the diocese and maybe the country. And my own Catholic life reflects that reality. My Catholic friends and mentors um, are really spread across Catholic Birmingham and North America, and they're they're certainly not located in one geographical parish. Um, And I just think that's the practical reality of Catholic ministry today. Uh, As much as the parish is supposed to be our home and to create a kind of climate where people can readily uh, experience and enjoy the presence of Christ in one another, unfortunately, sometimes that's not the case. And uh, and so we have to make we have to make uh, provisions for that. Now, at the level of, of parish reform, uh, there are a number of agencies and apostolates around the country that are seeking to implement reform of parish life. Um, you know, there's a there's an uh, organization, for example, called Amazing Parish that aims at this kind of renovation. And so, to the extent that you might be involved in parish leadership or have the ear of people that are pastoral councils and whatnot, uh, you might seek out some of those resources. So Amazing Parish, Dynamic Catholic, uh, M3 Ministries are co- some that come to mind and recommend, hey, you know, our parish seems to be kind of uh, at um, loggerheads right now uh, with conflicts over this, that, and the other thing. Perhaps we should look to some program of parish renewal that could help us re-examine our customs and our structures and our ways of doing things and our budgetary priorities to bring them more in line with the needs of the apostolate. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with Pope Francis's apostolic exhortation from 2013 called Evangelii Gaudium. And the Pope said uh, in there, and this is kind of a loose quotation, I'll probably get the word wrong, he said, I dream of a missionary option when the Church's structures and times and ways of doing things can be suitably reformulated uh, in the interests of evangelism and apostolate, that that uh, that our call to missionary discipleship should have programmatic significance. We should critically scrutinize the way we do things in parishes uh, to make them less bureaucratic, uh, less conflict-ridden, more open, and more um, more accepting, and and the kind of places where people would want to find their Catholic identity. Excellent. Thanks, Sydney, for your question. Thanks for listening in South Bend. We now go to Thomas in uh, Glendon, Maryland, listening on Sirius XM. Thomas, what is your question? Yeah, hi. Thanks for taking my call. So I, w- I grew up Catholic and always taught to call my priest father. But then reading today in Matthew 23, 9, uh, Jesus implicitly says, and do not call anyone in a church on earth father. For you have one Father who is in heaven. Can you um, explain that? Um, yeah, thanks. Well, you, uh, I, will, I sure will. You changed one line in the text. Uh, you inserted the phrase, in the church. Jesus actually makes no reference to the church in Matthew 23. He says, call no man your father on earth. Call no man your father on earth. So if you took the words of Christ literally and at face value we would have to conclude that children cannot call their biological male parent father, Mm. that that would also be ruled out. And yet, I've never met a Christian of any description who hesitates to refer to their biological male parent as their father or their dad or their papa or whatever it is that is the term of endearment. Um, As People seem to recognize that this may have a more restricted sense, that we shouldn't be taken exactly at face value. And uh, it's telling that he, he didn't make any particular mention of the church here. 
And Jesus' larger remarks on religious titles suggests to me that his primary point of reference here is still within the context of religious Judaism in the first century, because he goes on to say, don't let anyone call you, don't call people rabbi, don't call them teacher. Now, uh, interestingly, that's exactly what Christ's disciples called him. Hmm. They, they, They called him rabbi more frequently than they called him Lord, right? Um, but he says, don't let anybody call you rabbi. Don't let them call you teacher. Don't seek out uh, the, the, you know, the place at the head of the table. Don't stand on street corners and pray in a, in a showy way to be seen by men. All of these prohibitions and councils seem to have in mind not a particular religious office uh, or kind of relationship, but rather um, the, 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 the trait of being a respecter of persons and a collector of titles, right? That if your if your mode of religious behavior and religious leadership is to seek um, notoriety for yourself through aggregating titles, uh, then you have the wrong motive, and and that that can infect the Catholic priesthood. Pope Francis is frequently critical of clerics that are careerists who enter the clerical state because, for whatever reason, they want to climb the ecclesiastical hierarchy and not have regard for the care of souls. Um, uh, but clearly there are many Catholic priests that don't fall into that category and have the care of souls uh, as their primary concern. And they're the sort of people who seek the lowest place at the table and not the highest. In my Catholic life, my experience has been that I've received a lot of pastoral care from priests that sit at the lowest place of the table, as it were, right? And, uh, and I always call them father out of respect and endearment. Um, but uh, but they're the kind of priests that I could imagine would be equally comfortable with Ralph, you know, under the right, right. context, right? Because it's not about the title. It's about uh, making their ordination a ministry of service to the people around them. And that, that really is what underscores that. Now, throughout the rest of sacred scripture, we find a lot of evidences of the term father uh, or a paternal relationship referred to as a as a, a way of endearingly expressing religious authority or religious guidance. So I think about the prophet Elisha, for example, uh, in Second Kings, when he cries out, uh, "My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel," as Elijah ascends into heaven, or Saint Paul, uh, who can write to the Corinthians in First Corinthians four, uh, through the gospel, "I have become your father," or he can address Timothy as Timothy, my son, in 1 Timothy 1.18, I think clearly indicating that we shouldn't take the words of Jesus here to imply a blanket categorical prohibition on ever using the word pater. Hmm. All right. Thanks so much, Thomas. That, of course, now frees up a line. You can reach us today. Call the communion with Dr. David Anders at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986, as now we're going to go to Bud Lake, New Jersey, listening on Sirius XM. Camille, what's your question for Dr. Anders? Hi, thanks for taking my call. My question is uh, a three is uh, regarding the Holy Eucharist, and it's a three-part question. So, number one, why do Catholics receive the Holy Eucharist every Sunday? And also, uh, why is the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass every day, daily? And the second one is, um, uh, is, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verses 23 to 26, the same meaning as, re- or this related to John 6, 51. And the third is, um, is this a spiritual or a, a physical commandment of Jesus? Now, I know the answer, and I'm trying to, I remember listening to you over and over, and seven times Jesus says, eat my body, drink my blood, is true food, true drink. Now, He's not 
getting that. He thinks because of all these other verses in the Bible are parables that he's just saying, all you have to do is believe. So it's basically he's his his, his uh, church is non-denominational Bible only, just to give you a idea of where he's coming from. And that is all. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. Let's take these one at a time. And I was I hope I jotted them all down right. There was a lot to go on there. If I miss one, you can let me know. Why do Catholics receive communion every Sunday? They do not. They do not receive communion every Sunday. Um, uh, and in fact, there was about a thousand-year period in the Church's history when Catholics would commune only once a year. Uh, it is not mandatory for Catholics to receive communion every Sunday. In fact, the Code of Canon Law says that Catholics are bound to receive communion once a year. Once a year. That, that's the minimum requirement. And any time that a Catholic is not properly disposed for communion, and there could be a variety of reasons for that. Let's say, for example, they haven't kept the Church's communion fast. They wouldn't be properly disposed to receive communion. They shouldn't receive communion. Uh, if, a con- if a Catholic is conscious of grave sin uh, in Mass and has not had access to the sacrament of confession, they are not properly disposed, should not receive communion. Christ himself speaks about making an offering, and he says, if you have enmity in your heart against your brother, don't, don't make your offering, and we could refer that to the offering, the holy sacrifice of the Mass. Rather, go be reconciled to your brother, then come back and make your offering. So all kinds of reasons why a Catholic might refrain from communion uh, on Sunday, although it's true that, that these days a majority of Catholics do receive communion on Sunday. Um, now, why is that? Now, if the, pers- if the question is being asked from the perspective of say, a Protestant who is accustomed to may, maybe like quarterly communion or monthly communion, I think it's really interesting to contextualize that position, all right? Because here's the, here is the story on Protestant communion in relationship to Catholic. As I mentioned, the practice in the Middle Ages was for Catholics to commune annually, not frequently at all, and annually. And so there was a big push in the Protestant Reformation to increase the frequency of communion— so that Christians would commune more frequently than they had before. So the, the Protestant Church wanted frequent communion in comparison to the Catholics' annual communion. Now, what about it being weekly, and why did they not go in for weekly right off the bat? Well, th- this is especially clear in the case of Geneva, Switzerland, where John Calvin was the Presbyterian uh, uh, authority—we didn't call it Presbyterian at that time, but it's what became Presbyterianism. He was the ecclesiastical authority in Geneva, and Calvin's perspective was that you should have communion frequent enough uh, to, uh, to edify the populace, but he didn't want it to happen every week because Calvin believed it was very important that the laity be examined by the clergy for their worthiness to go to communion. And so a too-frequent communion would, uh, would prevent the clergy from doing that proper examination. When he first showed up in Geneva in 1536, he was 27 years old, and he said, I've got a great idea. I'll write a confession of faith for the entire city of Geneva. All of you guys affirm it, and I get the right to excommunicate you and kick you out of communion if you don't, or if I think your lives are disordered. And the city of Geneva said, we have a better idea, Calvin, we're going to kick you out. And so they kicked him out to Strasbourg, where he mm. stayed until 1541. Um, that's a very different perspective, right, than the perspective that many modern Protestants have on infrequent communion. And you'll typically get this kind of answer on frequency of communion. They'll say something like, well, we can't go to communion too frequently, because then people might take it too seriously and think that this has some sort of real efficacy, and all it really is is a reminder. And so, you know, we need to be reminded all that often. If we make it a consistent ritual, people might become ritualists, and that would be just a terrible thing. I I point this out because that's the opposite of what 
early Protestants thought. Mm -hmm. They thought that precisely because the sacrament conveyed the substance of Christ's body and blood, and Calvin did in fact believe that the sacrament conveyed the substance of Christ's body and blood, he uses that exact phraseology, that it needed to be relatively infrequent to give the clergy time to police the lives of the laity. And hence, you get something like the development of Puritanism in North America, which was all about policing the lives of the laity. So very, very different context about frequency of communion throughout Protestant Catholic history. I'll come back to the rest of these questions after the break. Camille, hang tight. We'll take a short break. And when we come back, we'll continue to take your calls. 833-288-3986. That's 833-288-EWTN. And again, on Facebook and YouTube, it's called The Communion with Dr. David Anders on EWTN Radio. Call to Communion, Dr. David Anders on this Feast of St. Rose of Lima as we celebrate that today. We're also answering your questions at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Camille had uh, quite a few questions before the break, so we're continuing to pick up where we left off. The first question was about the frequency of communion uh, in the Catholic Church versus the Protestant Church. And I won't rehash the answer I gave, but suffice it to say... That that, that that history has changed quite a lot over the years, both from the Catholic perspective and the Protestants. So Protestants have re- celebrated communion more or less frequently, and for different reasons. Catholics have celebrated more or less frequently, and also for different reasons. But as far as the underlying theology of communion and the Mass goes within the Catholic Church, why, why would the Mass be offered every single day? Uh, why would laity uh, want to commune frequently? Well, it's because uh, in Catholic theology, the Mass is the most efficacious prayer that the Church has. It is the offering of Christ's body and blood, soul, and divinity to the Father for the reconciliation of the world. And Pius XII called the Mass the most efficacious means of attaining sanctity, Uh, not merely through the outward performance of the ritual, but the inward conformity of one's heart to what is displayed within, namely the sacrifice of Christ's life. And it's this is the way of sanctity. We learn to imitate the, the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus uh, to become more like him. And, and the Mass is the liturgical expression of that divine mystery. And so we give ourselves to that in the hopes of transforming our personalities into the likeness of his uh, divine personality. And so, well, I mean, how often do you want to rehearse? Like, you know, I have a son that just joined the cross-country team at high school. And uh, the coach said, you know, make sure you practice on the weekends. Well, you know, why? Why not just practice during the weekday? Well, practice makes perfect, right? right? That's, the, that's the principle, you know. The old quip about how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, man, practice, right? right? Same thing's true in the Christian life. How do you grow in the likeness and imitation of Christ? By intentionally conforming yourself to Christ's uh, behavior, to Christ's likeness and image. And the ritual expression of that self-conformity is our participation in Holy Mass. So that, that's why a Catholic would want to participate frequently in Mass. And, of course, our belief that Christ is truly present in Holy Communion means uh, a, a, a kind of intimacy mm. found in the sacrament that's not found elsewhere. Um, uh, we had a question about whether uh, St. Paul's discussion of the liturgy in 1 Corinthians 11, 23-26 uh, is uh, 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 the same thing that's being discussed in John chapter 6, where Christ indicates that his flesh is real food and his blood is real drink. Uh, we come at this question from different angles. So one question is, how do we know that John 6 is about the liturgy? Because it's interesting, the Gospel of John is the only one of the three gospel, or the four Gospels 
that has no explicit mention of baptism in the Eucharist. There's no explicit mention of baptism in the Eucharist. However, it clearly has an implicit reference to baptism in the Eucharist. John chapter 3, where you have to be born again in water of the Spirit, water and the Spirit, and John chapter 6, which begins with Christ giving thanks for bread and wine, and the word for giving thanks is, uh, is Eucharist in Greek. Uh, it doesn't take a stretch to find parallelisms, and modern Catholic biblical scholars, even Protestant scholars like Joachim Jeremias, recognize that there's a structural parallelism between the words of institution and John and those that we find in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, why does John not explicitly mention the sacraments? Why does he only implicitly mention them? Well, a theory, one to which I ascribe, is that John was written in a time and place when a discipline that we call the discipline of the secret was already in effect. Early Christians uh, had a practice of concealing the liturgy from unbelievers and outsiders, lest they be profaned. And so they used a kind of coded language to describe their uh, liturgical behaviors, uh, lest it be fallen fall into disrepute among among scoffers. And so that that's an explanation for why uh, John would speak in this kind of veiled and cryptic way. But the people to whom he spoke, the community for whom John wrote, clearly knew what the Eucharist was and celebrated it and handed it down to sacred tradition. And the 2,000-year history of Christian interpretation of John 6 has always been to see it as a reference to the Eucharist. Um, should we, I mean, 1 Corinthians 11 is clearly a reference to the liturgy. Paul recounts the words of institution uh, and admonishes us to, to do this in, in memory of Christ. Um, should we hold that 1 Corinthians 11 also refers to Christ's real presence in the Eucharist? I think that was another uh, question that was raised. Well, Paul tells us that those who partake in an unworthy manner are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Um, and, uh, and clearly, 1 Corinthians, like John 6, like the rest of the New Testament, was written to people who already practiced the liturgy, right? The liturgy predates the text of Scripture. Scripture doesn't come before the liturgy, it comes after the liturgy. And there is a consistent history of interpretation for 2,000 years, an understanding that Catholics have always had, that Christians have always had, of what it was they were doing when they performed these rites. And, and one of those bedrock convictions, grounded in the words of Christ, but, but lived uh, liturgically even before the scriptures were compiled, was that this really is Christ's body and blood, albeit present in a very mysterious way. All right, Camille, thanks so much for your questions today. That now frees up a phone line. You can reach us at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. And, of course, you can always jump in on Facebook or YouTube if you're watching us there and submit your question. And uh, Jeff Burson will get those to us during the show today. So as we head to Guadalupe Radio listener Ann in uh, Northern Virginia. Ann, what is your question? Thanks so much for calling. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I have always wondered why Jesus is referred to and refers to himself as the Son of Man. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Appreciate the question. Uh, in the book of Daniel, the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 7, the prophet has a vision of the apocalyptic end of the world, uh, presaged by the arrival of some kind of heavenly, angelic, or messianic figure, to whom will be given dominion and a kingdom, a kingdom that will never pass away. Uh, and uh, 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 Daniel describes this character as one coming like a son of man, or a, one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. And so in first century Judaism, when Jesus was alive, 
uh, the, the phrase son of man referred to this vision from Daniel. And, and the other prophets had all written about the coming kingdom of God, when God would vindicate his people and mete out uh, vengeance upon their enemies. And so there was an expectation that God would come in power. Daniel added some specificity to that expectation by suggesting that it would be associated with the arrival of one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. Uh, the Gospels clearly identify Jesus with this Danielic figure. He is this eschatological king who comes at the end of time to inaugurate the kingdom of God. All right. Thanks so much, Anne, for your question. We jump over to Facebook Live. Sherry is watching us there. She says, I was telling my sister about my prayer life. She, not being Catholic, said it sounded ritualistic. Since you just mentioned that, I thought I would ask about that. She made it sound like a bad thing. Yes, thank you. I really appreciate the question. So there is absolutely nothing wrong with ritual. In fact, ritual is imperative, and Christ admonishes us. He, he commands us to perform certain rituals. When the disciples came to Jesus and they said, teach us how to pray, um, he didn't say, you know, stick one hand in the air and say spontaneously whatever comes to mind, uh, and, uh, and, and that, that note of spontaneity and heartfelt sincerity is the requirement for authentic or legitimate prayer. Jesus never said any such thing. Rather, when he said, they said, teach us how to pray, what Jesus said was, this is how you are to pray. Say the following words. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, etc., etc., etc. Christ gave them a formula, a ritual. The implication being that it should be recited daily. Give us this day our daily bread. Um, Christ instituted many other rituals. Uh, he instituted the holy sacrifice of the Mass uh, on Holy Thursday, and he gave the command, do this in memory of me. And that's why St. Paul can say, the tradition that I received from the Lord, I hand on to you. Namely, that on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body, etc., etc., right? Christ instituted rituals. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Go unto all nations, make disciples, teach them everything I have commanded you, and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The New Testament is replete with ritual. What's wrong with ritual? Mm -hmm. Right? What's wrong with ritual? Uh, everyone has ritual. You can't get away from it. If you, do, if you do things three times in a row the same way, you've got ritual. Mm -hmm. Like, I've been to plenty of churches in my life that eschewed Catholic ritual. Man, they got more rituals than, than you can shake a stick at. <laughs> the church I was growing up in was not overly ritualistic in the liturgical sense. Uh, but I remember one ritual, still, it just seared into my brain. Uh, they would always divide the congregation up between adults and children when it came to the sermon. And they would dismiss the children. And the way they dismiss the children is there's a, f a famous Protestant children's hymn called Tell Me the Stories of Jesus. Tell me the stories of Jesus I love to hear. And the pianist would play that melody uh, instrumentally, and it was the signal to all the kids that they should get up and walk out of the room and go to so-called children's church. Mm -hmm. I cannot hear that song today <laughs> without this, like, compulsion to stand up and, like, go to the <laughs> fellowship the hall, you know, to leave the room, because it's a, a ritual totally embedded into my consciousness, mm -hmm. right? And I could name 10,000 others. Passing an offering plate, uh, you know, down the center aisle for everybody to put in their gifts. What is that but a ritual? I mean, every Protestant church I've ever been to does that every single week. If they didn't, they couldn't keep the lights on, right? Mm -hmm. How about the pastor mounting the pulpit, opening the Bible, and intoning his sermon? That's a ritual. Mm -hmm. They do it every week. They do it, might I say, religiously. I mean, the... I could go on and on and on. What's wrong with ritual? Christ instituted ritual. 
the problem with ritual is not whether we're going to have ritual or not. It's what rituals are we going to have? Are we going to have those of our own invention, or are we going to have those instituted by Christ? Yeah. Amen to that. All right. That, of course, gives us a chance to take your call. Still got time today. This is called The Communion with Dr. David Anders, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. And again, outside North America, one 271 2985. Uh, we jump into the mailbag. Jay wants to know, he says, my wife cannot wrap her head around the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. Can you suggest books of how I could help her explain that? Uh, so books on the Immaculate Conception specifically, hmm, I'll have to think about the, the book reference. I've got lots of books of, on Our Lady. I don't, I'm trying to think if I've got one that specifically deals with the Immaculate Conception. Um, uh, there is a book by Father Reginald Garigou Lagrange about Our Lady, um, and I'm trying to remember the exact title. Um, it is uh, Mother of the Savior in Our Interior Life. That's it. Uh, and he, as, memory, uh, as I recall, he does a pretty darn good job of explicating the, pr- the, the major Marian dogmas, including the Immaculate Conception. It's fairly it's a little bit scholastic, but, but uh, it's, it's fantastic. So Mother of Our Savior by uh, Gary Goulagrange. But look, I, in terms of actually conceptualizing it, I don't think it's all that difficult. You don't need a whole book on the topic. Immaculate Conception simply means that in the moment in which Mary was conceived— that God granted her the gift of sanctifying grace. What we would normally receive in baptism, she received at the moment of her conception. And he did so in view of her dignity of having been chosen to be the mother of God. Right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. a pretty big deal, mother of God. It's a bigger deal than the Immaculate Conception, honestly. Like, mm-hmm. the greatest dignity conferred on Mary was not her Immaculate Conception. It was the dignity of bearing the God-man. But in view of that dignity, she was also granted the secondary dignity of having been conceived immaculately, so that uh, she never had any stain of original sin about her life and was granted a kind of superabundant grace that enabled her to live a sinless life. Uh, that's the doctrine. Jay, we hope that helps. And of course, anytime you want to send email, ctc at ewtn.com as we go back and check our voicemail. Uh, hi, my name is John, and I uh, want to ask a question of Dr. Anders. And uh, my question is, Jesus had the wounds on his body from his crucifixion. When Jesus ascended into heaven, did he actually carry his sacred wounds with him into eternity? That's my question. Thank you, Dr. Anders. Thank you, Tom. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. Uh, The only light that I can shed on this directly would be the fact that uh, when Thomas doubted, Christ said, here, come look at the wounds in my hands inside. So he was clearly able to manifest those wounds to Thomas. On the other hand, we also know that the resurrection body of Christ is qualitatively different from the body that he had before he went into the grave. Um, And we don't know what all that transformation entailed, uh, but Paul says it's like a different species, he said, he, he, for example, he says, you know, not all flesh is the same. You, you know, one kind of like fish flesh is different from reptilian flesh, which is different from mammalian flesh. They're all flesh, but they're qualitatively different kinds of flesh. Paul says that the difference between Christ's um, pre-resurrection and post-resurrection bodies is analogous to that, that it is a qualitatively different kind of body, although we don't know what that means precisely. So perhaps, you know, his wounds are something that he could manifest at will in order to 
convince the doubting Thomas, or perhaps he bears those marks um, eternally as a witness, a memorial to his self-sacrifice. Clearly, when John the Apostle uh, uh, has this uh, theophany of the life of heaven, he sees the Lamb as one having been slain. That's in the book of Revelation. But it's hard to know what to make of that. So I guess we'll have to wait till we get there to find out. John, thanks so much for your question. If you would like to call in today with your questions for Dr. Anders, 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. Before we go back to the phones, we want to let you know about this weekend. It is our EWTN family celebration happening in Birmingham, Alabama at the BJCC. This is a chance for you to help us celebrate the 100th centennial of uh, Mother Angelica's birth, as well as be a part of some great discussions and challenging messages uh, from EWTN television and radio host. Plus, you can also attend the Holy Mass and uh, just be a part of an amazing opportunity this weekend to uh, really rally with other fellow viewers of EWTN and our audience uh, who is a part of this every day. So uh, come be a part of the family celebration. Go to EWTN.com to find out more information as uh, we check in more voicemails overnight. So uh, let's uh, do that again, 833-288-EWTN. My name is Sean. I'm calling from the Washington, D.C. metro region. And my question is around how to deal with family members who have decided to become Jehovah's Witness and uh, seem to be very combative towards me, naming off scripture and calling out scripture that's specific to justify their case. And what should I do about it? I'm very confused and it's frustrating. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So, of course, this answer requires prudence, and prudence requires a deep familiarity with the people involved, and that's something that I don't have. I don't have that personal knowledge of these folks and what they would be responsive to, so it's hard for me to give a prescriptive answer. But I'll give you some general thoughts about it. Uh, In my judgment, if you can avoid conflict, that's better, that's preferable, and so, you know, if you've tried the old let us agree to disagree routine, you know, that, that would be that would be where I, where I would start, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if, uh, you know, it takes two to fight. It takes two to have that kind of conflict. And they're probably not amenable to discussion, right? They, they, they want to proselytize. They want to conquer. They're aggressive. Uh, I see no reason to make yourself a victim of their animosity in that way, mm-hmm. right? And so you can really raise yourself above that rhetorical fray and say, look, I, you know, you're my relative. I love you. I want to be in a relationship with you. Let's go get a pizza or a cup of coffee or, you know, something like that. Can we relate as human beings rather than religious antagonists? Let's start with our common humanity. Um, if, if they won't go there and, and you just have to be drawn into religious discussion, I mean, I, I, where I would go with Jehovah's Witnesses, beginning, I'd say, well, it's very interesting that you're quoting the Bible at me. Why are you quoting the Bible? Like, where'd the Bible come from? Why do you think this is an authority, particularly? And, um, well, it's God's Word. Okay, that's fantastic. How do you know it's God's Word, right? And, and, and moreover, how do the various parts come together? Are you, are you conscious of the fact that it was the Catholic Church, Catholic hierarchy, that, that actually compiled the Bible that we have today and, and presented it to the world as sacred scripture, that the, Catholic, the Bible is a, is a product of Catholic tradition, and that if you if you want to cast aspersions on Catholic tradition, you're really undermining the very Bible that you claim to cite. Um, and then secondly, uh, you're citing the Bible as if it were a standalone, utterly comprehensive authority on Christian life and practice. Where did you get that idea from? Even if you concede, even if I concede the Bible's inspiration and authority, which I can't do without the Catholic Church, but even if I concede that, 
why should I concede that the Bible is the rule of faith for Christian life? Does the Bible say that about itself? It doesn't. Nowhere in sacred scripture are we taught that sacred scripture, as it's held by the Jehovah's Witnesses, is in fact the rule of faith. In fact, Jesus gives completely different directions for how we know and understand the Christian faith. He never points us to the Bible as our rule of faith. He points us to the teaching church. Matthew 28 tells us, Christ said to the disciples, go make disciples of all nations, teach everything I've commanded you, which was all oral tradition. I'll be with you to the end of the age. Whoever hears you hears me. Right? So it's, it's actually the teaching church that Christ commissioned that has the authority to teach the faith, not, not the Bible alone. It certainly isn't the Watchtower Society. Right? So you, you read the Bible as interpreted by the Watchtower Society. What authority does the Watchtower Society have? Why should I listen to them? Do they have divine authority? Did Christ send the Watchtower Society? Absolutely no evidence of that. And they're latecomers to the scene, obviously. Furthermore, is the Watchtower Society particularly reliable, whether or not it has authority from God? And the answer to that question is emphatically no. Just just go spend a little time on, on, uh, on the Internet and look up Jehovah's Witnesses' failed prophecies. And the number of dates that the Watchtower Society has set for the end of the world that have come and gone should uh, disabuse anyone as to the reliability of their biblical interpretation. All right. Thanks so much for your question. We're going to go now to Southern Illinois. Jim, listening on Sirius XM 130. Jim, welcome to Call to Communion. What's your question? Well, thank you for taking my call. I listen every day going to work. I enjoy your program. A uh, couple questions. If the wife and I go out to eat, you know, a hamburger or anything, we always pray. Um, I wondered if that's in good taste out in public, and I wonder if I have someone over to my home for a meal, if I pray over that, you know, before we eat, uh, and I know that my guests are not particularly religious, even my kids, um uh, if they don't bow their head, is that disrespectful? Yeah, I think. And I wonder if a person's faith, you know, in a family, can save others in his family if they are not religious. And thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate the questions. So this this business about prayer before meals in public or among non-believers, I think you have to look at it from a couple of points of view. Ultimately, of course, the purpose of prayer before meals is to give thanks. It's an expression of gratitude. And with, as with all prayer, we don't thank God because he needs to hear it. You know, God is not sitting around on the edge of his seat, chewing on his fingernails, wondering if we like him, right? Mm-hmm. He's, he's, not, he's not anxious. He's not insecure. Uh, we don't pray because God needs our prayers. We pray because we need to pray. It is, it's for the sake of our own souls that we pray. And prayer before meals in particular, because we want to inculcate gratitude in our hearts to make that a habit. And so I think that, you know, that the need for gratitude is perennial. We, we can't ever stop being grateful. We have to always be grateful. And so it's good to have a habit of praying before meals and at other times in order to inculcate that gratitude. Now, it, it's different, it seems to me, if I am praying not to demonstrate gratitude, but to demonstrate my religiosity to other people um, as a kind of religious exhibitionism. And, uh, and I'm not saying that's the only motive, but that is a kind of extreme that you could go to. 
I have been in many environments where I felt fairly confident that the person doing the praying fell under Christ's admonition, don't pray in public to be seen by men. Mm. If you do, you will have your reward in full. Um, you know, this is, uh, well, should I say it? This is particularly the case when politicians pray, right? I, I genuinely don't think that they are praying to express gratitude to Almighty God, but to be seen by men, right? To be seen to be pious by people they want to impress. Um, what if my motive is proselytizing? I, I think that by my demonstration of public prayer that you know perhaps I could influence another soul. Well, then I think that's a prudential judgment. Um, that might be the case. I think there are situations where um, the, the joyous expression of one's faith publicly can absolutely be um, a means of bringing other people into participation in the Christian life. That definitely can happen. Um, but it can also be perceived as a form of religious exhibitionism done in a showy way to be seen by men. And so I think one has to attend to one's motives, and I think one has to attend to the, the, uh, the social and religious condition of the people uh, that one is praying around, right? To try to discern that is what's the best path uh, forward. Can my faith save someone else? Well, you know, there's a passage in St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians when he is dealing with the question of, of uh, a mixed marriage, when you have a believer married to an unbeliever. And um, uh, he says that even in that instance, that the, that the children of the believer are, and these are his words, sanctified through the faith of the believer. Now, I don't think we can conclude that their salvation is guaranteed. I don't think that's what he means. But um, as members of that household, the believer is in a covenant relationship with God, and, and that, that person's children are special beneficiaries of that in a certain way. Um, and so there's a benefit to the families of the believers through the faith of the one believing. I don't think it's sufficient to get that soul to heaven, uh, but it definitely makes them, say, closer to the heart of the church, uh, to Christian nurture, uh, to Christian doctrine, to the means of sanctification than they would otherwise be. Jim, thanks so much for your call, helping us to wrap things up today on Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. We're here for you each and every day at this time, and that way you can, of course, formulate your question. So tomorrow, you can call in. We want to say thanks to Charles, Jeff, as well as Rich Jesse for helping today as our show team is always ready to take your calls. And also, if you missed any of this show, you want to hear previous episodes, check us out on demand. And, of course, listen tonight, the Encore at 11 o'clock Eastern. And again, you can check us out at EWTN.com slash radio so you don't miss out on future episodes as well. Until tomorrow, I'm H. McKay in for Tom Price. Remember to let God define who you are. Have a great rest of your day.